It's something wonderful to know that God has always loved you. No Greater Love has been our sermon series. We paused for a few weeks there for some special services, and we're back there today. Probably the most quoted verse in all of the Bible, John 3.16 says it best. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life, eternal life. We're going to talk about the doctrine of election, some today, the idea that God only chose some to be saved, those being the elect and everyone else is destined to eternal punishment. I believe in a form of election, the sense that God knows who will and will not choose him, who will not follow him. But the idea that God only loves some and hates the rest is simply not what I read in Scripture. Okay, There are scholars who believe that. I do not. For God so loved the world, that's everyone, Republicans and Democrats, conservatives and liberals, believers and unbelievers, sinners and saints, heterosexuals and homosexuals, liars and thieves and prostitutes and murderers. You know, he loves them all. God so loved the world. Jesus and his disciples hung out with sinners, not because he condoned their lifestyles, but because he loved them and he wanted them to be restored to the Father. Moses killed an Egyptian and then hid his body in the sand. You know, if it was all right, what he'd done, he wouldn't have been hiding the body. And then he fled, self-imposed exile for 40 years in Midian. Did God still love Moses even after he killed the Egyptian? Of course he did. And he obviously went on to use Moses in amazing ways because God so loved the world. Okay, The problem we run into with this passage and even the idea that God loves everyone is that we translate God loving the world with his acceptance of the world's behavior. And that's a grave mistake. Okay, but it's becoming very, a very popular notion in our culture. This analogy isn't perfect, but the concept that we love our kids, even though they're being disobedient, is applicable here. Okay, when my daughter does the exact opposite of what I tell her to do, which happens rather frequently, I don't condone the misbehavior, and I sometimes have to exact punishment for her disobedience, but there's never a moment in all of that when I don't love her. Right? This is true of God but even in a much greater sense, because we as humans change. We're capable of change. We, we can become better or worse people. God, on the other hand, never changes. He is, in fact, incapable of change. Did you know that? Because He is perfection. He cannot improve, and He cannot deteriorate. He cannot get better or worse. He's forever the same. That's what it means to be immutable. Okay, And that's a theological word you hear a lot, immutable. And that's the aspect of God's love that we're studying today, immutability. Okay, It means unchanging, incapable of change. He's always the same. And to be certain, without any doubt, God is immutable. His character is unchanging. Malachi 3, verse 6, the Lord says to his people, For I, the Lord, do not change, which speaks to his immutable nature. But if you look at the next verse... He says, return to me and I will return to you, which suggests that his actions or responses to us are at times based on choices that we make. So does God ever change his actions, his course based on our obedience or disobedience? Well, sure he does. I think we see that throughout the Bible. On several occasions, we see God in Scripture on the verge of severely punishing or even wiping out the nation of Israel, but the prophet intercedes and God spares them. God can choose to change his course of action if he wants to, 
But his nature, his character, is forever unchanged. He is immutable. Okay? Hebrews 13.8 says that he's the same yesterday and today and forever. Psalm 119.89 says, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Psalm 102.27, You are the same and your years have no end. Psalm 33.11, The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Okay? You're getting the idea. There are literally hundreds of texts in Scripture that we could use today as a basis for exploring the immutability of God. Here's a quote from Herman Bavinck. He was a, a Dutch Reformed theologian lived at the end of the 1800s and early 1900s. He says that the doctrine of God's immutability is of the highest significance for religion. The contrast between being and becoming marks the difference between the creator and the creature. Every creature is continually becoming. It is changeable, constantly striving, seeks rest and satisfaction, and finds rest in God, in Him alone. For only He is pure being and no becoming. Hence in Scripture, God is often called the rock. Okay? God doesn't change. We change. We fret. We come undone. The Lord never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is our rock, our stronghold, our refuge. Second Samuel 22, 3. He's our fortress. Psalm 18, 2. He's a strong tower. Psalm 61, 3. He's a bulwark, a, de a defensive wall. Isaiah 26, 1. In time of distress. God is steady and solid. He's immutable. He's unchanging. Steady. Solid, strong, and true. He's faithful and reliable. Okay? That should bring us great comfort in our ever-changing world, in our, in our ever-changing lives. That should comfort you. And if God is unchanging, completely immutable, then all of His characteristics are unchanging. And since we're talking about the love of God, that means His love as well is unchanging. It's immutable. Okay? Why is that significant? What does immutable love mean to the believer? Well, that's what we're talking about. First, it means that his love is sovereign. Okay? The only reason that we can love God, or anyone else for that matter, is because he first loved us. 1 John 4.19 tells us that. The only reason we can accomplish anything is because of what he accomplished first. The only reason we can accomplish, or excuse me, we have any ability at all, is because he has made us able Without God, we have nothing. We can do nothing. In fact, we are nothing without Him. God is sovereign over all things. His love is sovereign over our love. And so our ability to love is solely based on His love for us. You see, we didn't choose God. We think we did sometimes. The fact is, He chose us. And then we fashion a response to either love Him back or not. But let's be clear, the only reason we have a choice to love is because He first loved us. Okay, And once we fully grasp that concept, it changes things. It changes the way we love, how we love, why we love, and how much we love. Because our love response to others and to God is no longer based on our feelings about ourselves or others. It's no longer based on how good or bad we think we are. It's no longer based on how good or bad we think others are. It's no longer based on what we think our capacity for love is. 
Okay? Once we truly understand that, we've, we've been chosen. When we understand that we've been set apart for good works, enabled to do his work solely upon his merits and not our own, we begin to see relationships differently. And we begin to love differently. As a pastor, I'm continually dealing with people in marital conflict. In truth, I can't ever remember a time in pastoral ministry when I wasn't involved with at least one couple trying to get help uh, through the difficulties in their marriage. And that's part of my job description. It's actually a joy for me, um, albeit tough at times. I enjoy helping people or trying to help people with that. But one overwhelming and fairly consistent issue that raises its head in these relationship struggles is that we often base our expression of love to each other on our feelings. The problem with that is feelings are fickle. You know, they change all the time. Feelings will betray you. Feelings are the stuff that movies are made of, okay, not life. They're certainly a part of life. And feelings can be a wonderful part of life. I'm not discounting feelings altogether. They can be a terrible part of life. But they're not, or at least shouldn't be, the basis for our relationships. Okay? We, should, we shouldn't ever base major decisions about our relationships on how we feel at any given time. Yet I've watched marriages form and I've watched marriages end based entirely upon the foundation of shifting sand that is our feelings. It changes with the tide. We should never base major relationship decisions on something as fleeting and untenable as feelings, okay? Rather, we should base relationship decisions on how He loves us. That's our example of how to love each other. We are to pattern our responses to each other and our love for each other based on how He loves us. So how does He love us? Sacrificially and unconditionally. Okay, now I'm going to clarify those terms in a moment because, again, in our culture, we've hijacked those words to mean something than, than what they mean in the Bible. But we'll get to that in a minute. They're actually, that's our next point in the message today. Okay, but first, if you have your Bible, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 1. And we're going to read right from uh, verse 1. And we're going to qualify that God's love is in fact sovereign. And then we'll come back to the idea of sacrificial and unconditional love. And the fact that all of these elements are part of a larger, the larger immutable nature of God. Okay, So Ephesians 1, starting on verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so in verse 1, Paul introduces his status as an apostle to the church in Ephesus and makes sure that the readers there understand that he's an apostle by the will of God. In other words, God didn't approve Paul as an apostle because that's what he wanted to, to be. God had already appointed Paul to be an apostle by his perfect will. In fact, before Paul was ever born. And Paul was obedient to the call, to that appointment, according to the Father's will. There's a lesson in this one phrase for us here, by the will of God. Our decisions, our direction in life, our choices should be based on God's perfect and sovereign will, which is always born out of His love for us. So you can rest assured that He always has uh, what's best for you planned in the end, even though it doesn't always seem like it. 
And he's already determined what that perfect path, that direction for us is before we were born. So our job then is by seeking him to discern what his perfect will is for us and then be obedient to that calling. But instead, what we so often do is we make choices and decisions. We choose a direction for our lives based on our own will and then we expect God to approve those choices. Okay, And many times we can end up between a rock and a hard place and wonder why life seems to be such a struggle. Now, to be fair... Not every struggle we face is due to our bad decisions. Okay? Clearly we see in scripture where God allows us to experience trials and testing and even suffering for various reasons which we don't have time to explore today. So I'm not saying that if you're struggling that's certainly because you've made bad decisions. Okay? That isn't always the case. What I am saying is that we should always seek him first before making any significant decisions in life and discern his will first. And then choosing what to do at that point simply becomes a matter of obedience. I know that I'm the pastor of this church by the will of God. He had this whole deal figured out before we even got here. My wife and I didn't concoct this whole church idea on our own. We sought God's will when we were in Alaska. And through much praying and fasting, we believed with confidence that he was telling us to move here and plant this church. That was his plan all along. Okay? We just had to seek his will first and then it becomes a matter of obedience. The same is true for you. Are you facing uh, a big decision? Are you involved in relationships with some oversized question marks right now? If so, seek him first. Before you pull the trigger on a major decision like, you know, like the game changer kind of decisions, seek his will first. Pray. Fast. Spend copious hours on your knees if you have to in prayer. I'm completely confident that he will reveal his perfect will to you, whatever that is. It may well not be easy, but it will be clear and it will be what's best. And then it simply becomes a matter of obedience. Okay? Let's continue. Uh, Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. He had all this planned out, okay, even before the foundations of the world were laid. So for all of eternity before today, he had a plan in place to redeem you and me by sacrificing his son for our sins that he knew we'd commit before the earth was even here. And you realize the implications of that. That means that at the very least we, can, we can't take any credit whatsoever for our salvation because it was all worked out long before any of us were here. Okay? That's one of the most comforting and beautiful truths I've ever heard in Scripture. And what that means for us now is that when you are in your darkest hour, when the pressures of life are bearing down on you like a hurricane... You can rest in the midst of the chaos and pressure because of the knowledge that he has absolutely everything, not only under control, but already worked out. He knows the end from the beginning. Isaiah 46, 9 through 11 says, For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done. 
saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. Okay? That should take all of the pressure off of you. Our level of performance is not what accomplishes His will. He and He alone accomplishes His will in us through our obedience. That's really, really good news. Okay? Especially to all of us who have a tough time figuring some things out. And, and to all of you overachievers, I'm sorry to disappoint you. But God has got this. Okay? And, and it just keeps getting better. Alright? Let's continue. Um, in love... He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. So again, all of this is according to His will. It's all been worked out ahead of time and it's all born out of His love for us. His immutable love. Verse 6, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. Another verse why I don't believe in, in irresistible uh, grace meaning only some will be saved, and that was all worked out ahead of time. Okay? That he would bring all things together. Paul just keeps repeating the fact that God is asserting his will for all of time, which he's worked out in eternity for us. And he says it again here in verse 11. In him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So he's, he does have a plan. He does have it all worked out. We have to respond in obedience, okay? Paul is hammering on this fact that by his unchanging love, he's working out his plans in our lives through obedience for all of us, for the world. And so what is the assurance that we have that what Paul is saying is true? And what is the end game, right? What is the purpose of all of that? It's in verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So that's our guarantee. That this is all true. It's the Holy Spirit living inside of us. And we talked about that last week. And then the end of verse 14 answers the why to the praise of His glory. Okay? God's love is sovereign in that by His love He's working out His plan for our lives so that in the end He will be glorified and we will be forever united with Him and with each other. That's a really great plan. Aren't you thankful that you get to be a part of it? And consequently, if you're not currently on God's plan because you've been living outside of His will for you, there's good news for you today. All you have to do is submit your life to Him and become a follower of Christ. And you're instantly grafted into the family of God and into His ultimate plan for your life. Okay, and we'll revisit that point in a few minutes. Just to finish this point of His sovereignty over all things one more time. If we quickly look at Acts 13.48, Paul and Barnabas are in Antioch speaking to the crowds, and Paul is explaining that salvation is for the Gentiles as well as for the Jews. And then verse 48 says, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. That last part is a key phrase. 
as many as were appointed to eternal life believe. You see, he doesn't base our salvation on seeing ahead into the future and knowing that we will believe in him at some point. On the contrary, our faith in him is a result of him choosing us as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. It's, it's wonderful to know that God in his immutable love is sovereign. He chose us before we existed and his purposes will be accomplished in us as we're obedient to him. Okay, And so if his love is sovereign and his love is to be an example for us to follow, then we have to look at how he loves us. And I'm going to do that very quickly because I know we're running out of time. Okay, So I'll just skip through some of this. But he loves us sacrificially. His love is sacrificial. We don't have to spend a lot of time on it because we know what he did for us, right? He sent his son to die for every one of us. The ultimate sacrifice was made because of his love for us. Uh, Turn real quickly to the first eight uh, verses of Romans 5. He says, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to even die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So not only is his love for us sacrificial, but he sacrificed for those who didn't deserve it. What does that tell us about how we're to love one another? Right? Of course we're willing to sacrifice for those who love us back. But how hard is it to love and sacrifice for those who don't love us back, those who don't treat us right, those who take advantage of us? I can tell you, and I'm sure that most of you already know already, that can be very difficult. But that's exactly how he loves us, and that's how we are to love one another. Okay, So when your spouse mistreats you, when you're lied to, put down, offended, when you can't agree about anything, when your convictions don't line up, when you're at odds with your neighbor or someone really hurt you, our nature is to stand up for ourselves and fight back because we have rights and we deserve better. But the Lord says, your treasure is with me, not with this world. Love like I love. Sacrifice. Give up your life for each other, even when it hurts. That's tough. That's asking a lot. Yeah, it's asking a lot. In fact, he's asking us for everything. Okay? We're to lay down our lives for one another. So the next time you're confronted with struggle, hurt, offense, begin to lovingly sacrifice for that person. This is sort of a recipe for how to respond. How do you do that? Well, first is prayer. You pray for them even though you'd rather punch them in the face. Matthew 5, through 48 says, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Again, this speaks to his sovereignty. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? 
Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. We sacrifice in love by praying for one another even when we don't feel like it. And the second part of this is we sacrifice through acts of kindness. Romans 12, 14 says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Luke chapter 10 is the story of the Good Samaritan. We won't take time to read it. But it's all about acts of kindness and love, okay? God loved us sacrificially while we were still sinners. So we are to love one another sacrificially even when the other person doesn't deserve it. It's amazing how many walls of steel that people build in their hearts toward one another are melted away through sacrificial prayer and acts of kindness. So before you raise your voice, before you shake your fist, before you begin constructing those walls of separation in your heart, begin to pray for each other and be willing to give up something for each other and see what God will do. I, I was pulling out of a parking lot the other day in Greenville and I was coming up to the outlet, you know, onto the highway and there's traffic. And there was a car parked, not like it was waiting to get out, but parallel to the curb. And there was a, a young lady and a guy, her husband, boyfriend, friend, whatever, in the car. He's laid all the way back in the passenger seat and they're looking at each other talking. So I pull up, kind of past them to get onto the highway. And she hits the horn. And I don't mean like she beeps at me. Like she's standing on the horn of her car. And, and traffic's going by, and it's like 15 seconds, 20 seconds, and she won't stop. And I realized she must have been planning to get out, and she's upset because I got in front of her. And I put my truck in reverse, and I backed up, and I unrolled my window. And she saw me, and she looked away and started talking to her friend because she didn't want the confrontation. And I said, hey. And she kept talking. I said, hey. And she looked over at me. And I said, I didn't realize you were trying to pull out. I shouldn't have cut you off. I'm sorry. I apologize. And she looked at me and her mouth literally dropped open. She didn't know what to say. And she looked at her friend and she said, well, that was sweet. <laughs> and they, they pulled up in front of me and went out. And that's a bad example because it really didn't cost me anything. But you see what I'm saying? You know, when, when people, the world is so wound up. I mean, our society is wound so tight. It's amazing what a little kindness can do when we spread it around. God's love is sovereign, it's sacrificial, and finally, and we're wrapping up, it's unconditional. We basically made this point already in Ephesians 1, where we see that He loved us even before we existed. Okay, so there's nothing we can do to earn His love. So the point that I really want to make is that we've redefined this phrase, unconditional love, in our culture to mean unconditional acceptance. And those two are not the same. Okay, they're in fact very different. And I touched on this earlier. In Revelation chapter 3, 15 through 22, in a letter to the church, and that's important to note, he says, I know your works. You're neither hot, cold nor hot. With that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm... And neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Again, this was written to the church. This is written to church people. There's a strong argument to be made here. That lukewarm Christians aren't in fact going to be accepted into heaven. That, that if we're lukewarm, we may not actually be Christians. That's a hard message. Verse 17, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Right? I'm, I'm good. I love God. My family's good. We go to church. I love him. 
I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing. Not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy me gold refined, to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. That's the opposite of being lukewarm. Being zealous is nothing like being lukewarm. Repentance is no part of being lukewarm. Verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. And I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Listen. He loves us unconditionally. He does not accept us unconditionally. There are most certainly conditions to being accepted by the Father. What are they? Well, first of all, repentance and zeal. We must repent of our sins and then place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and devote the rest of our lives to living with Him for zeal. This is where the world gets it wrong. We like the, we like the part about uh, unconditional love. We just don't have to do anything about it. I just keep living my life the way I'm living. Keep sinning the way I'm sinning. Nothing should have to change in my life because he's God and he loves everybody. So we're all going to go to heaven. No, that's pluralism. That's, that's postmodernism. That is not scriptural. That's not the gospel. There are conditions to salvation. I know you know this, but we need to hear it. That word zealous in verse 19 in the ancient Greek means to burn with zeal. The word zeal in the ancient Greek means excitement of mind, fervor of spirit. It means pursuing, embracing, defending. This is how we're to live for Christ. He loves us unconditionally, but to be accepted by Him, we must repent and live for Him. This is exactly how we're to love each other. This is how we're to love our enemies. This is how we're to love the world. Okay? That doesn't mean that we accept everything that the world does. Not by a long shot. The church of late, in my opinion, has had a tendency to swing the pendulum one way or the other on this. We either reject not only the sin, but the sinner as well, showing very little love and compassion for those outside of the faith, which is wrong. Or we, in the name of unconditional love, accept everyone without any qualification for being a part of the church, the body of Christ. You know, we say, hey, it's okay that you're living in sin. We love you just as you are and you can be a part of the body of Christ without repentance and without pursuing Christ. No, we do love you just as you are, yes. You don't have to get cleaned up and righteous before you come to church. It's not what I'm talking about. We love you just as you are. But there are conditions to become a part of the body of Christ. There must be repentance, a turning, and giving your heart to Christ and following Him. We are the body of Christ. We're his holy bride. If we're to love like he loves, which we're called to do, we have to love everyone without accepting all of the sin and the baggage that the world is celebrating today and even some elements of the church. How do we do that? We tell the truth. We uphold standards. We never compromise his word. And we do it in absolute love. Always ready to wrap our arms around a wayward soul who comes before the Father repentant and immediately graft them into the body of Christ, this family of faith, when they give their hearts to Him and become Christ followers, okay? This is how we love, just as He loves us. So just to close, 
The immutability, the unchanging nature of God's love, his sovereign, sacrificial, unconditional love should bring you great comfort today. We cannot escape the love of Christ. We cannot change the love that he has for us by our actions. All that we can do is respond to it because he chooses us. So how will you respond? Do you accept his love even though your life isn't perfect? Even though you may have many struggles, even though you don't deserve it? Or are you waiting until you have it all together? Do you hold back from God out of fear that you're not good enough? Well, guess what? None of us is good enough. Are you afraid that he will reject you because you've been rejected by so many others? Boy, I've seen that in my life. Listen, God isn't waiting for you to get it all together. He isn't waiting for you to get more right than you, than you got wrong. There isn't this balance. He's waiting for you to tip the scales before he accepts you. He isn't going to reject you when you come to him. That's a guarantee. Jesus Christ already died for your sins. Not only the ones you've committed, but everyone you're going to commit in the future. All you have to do is respond to his immutable, unchanging love for you by saying, yes, I'm going to follow you. And so, whether it's the first time or the hundredth time, he wants to hear you say yes to him. Would you bow your heads with me as we close in prayer?